the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. In this episode, my co-hosts, Naomi and Rowan, will be speaking with Melanie Mosher and Sarah Hunt on their own experiences with disabilities and the intersection of these experiences and the genetic counseling profession. Sarah Hunt is a cancer genetic counselor in Colorado who loves cats, swimming, and singing, and advocates for disability rights. Melanie has been a genetic counselor for over 10 years with experience in prenatal and cancer genetic counseling. She currently works at Integrated Genetics, providing a variety of remote counseling services and serves on the board of the North Carolina Genetics and Genomics Advisory Committee. Now I'm excited to pass the mic over to Rowan and Sarah. Hello, everyone. In today's podcast episode, we will be focusing on issues facing genetic counselors who have either a personal or a family history of a disability. According to the most recent NSGC professional status survey, genetic counselors who identify as having a disability form only 2% of our field. Up first, to help me understand this community's lived experiences, is Sarah Hunt. Welcome to the episode, Sarah. Thank you. Sarah, tell us more about your life and how you grew up. Yeah, so I um, was born and raised in Colorado, in Fort Collins. I currently work in Denver, but I was always really active with choir and swimming and theater as a kid. I am a little person, so I've been involved with Little People of America since age one. So that has always been a big part of my life as well. And when you say that, how would you identify your disability as? Yeah, um, so I have a skeletal dysplasia or a form of dwarfism. I identify as having a mobility disability and as a little person. And I have some other unrelated medical conditions, so I also identify as having chronic illnesses. I'm curious to know, how did your personal experience with a disability impact your decision to go into the field of genetic counseling? Yeah. So I always knew I wanted to do something in science. I've always been a a big science nerd. And after college, I initially started a graduate program for neuroscience and found the, the lab environment too physically demanding and so started looking into other options. My mom actually started telling me when I was about 12 that I should look into genetic counseling because of my family's experiences working with genetics. And I kind of always went, oh, mom, you know, (laughs) but then kind of rediscovered the field through a, a couple of surgeries that I had meeting other families who had younger children who were going through similar surgeries and just realizing how much I enjoyed connecting with them and looking up information about genetic conditions and explaining genetics to people. And you are currently working in an in-person environment, correct? It's not virtual. Mine is currently virtual. Yeah. It is. Okay. It is. And yeah. did you ever work in an environment that was in-person, face-to-face with patients? Yes. So I had, I guess, a little over a year of in-person clinic experience before everything went to virtual. <laughs> so you did mention that the lab environment was a little bit more challenging Mm -hmm. in terms of a physical environment. So I wonder if when choosing a particular position or a field of genetic counseling, if your disability affected your choice. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So I do have a lot of medical appointments and procedures that I have to keep up with. And so flexibility for me is really key. And my current job is great about that. I've got a great team of coworkers and we kind of all step in and cover for each other when we need to, which also is great. For me, I found that the best conversations that I tended to have with patients was in my cancer rotation. So that's what I ended up pursuing. And I currently work as a cancer genetic counselor. So when you did work with patients face-to-face, I guess there was no choice for you but to disclose your disability to them, if appropriate. Did that affect your counseling with them, or did you feel like they were targeting questions towards your disability? Right. Yeah. I, you know, when I was in grad school and when with my first job, when I had a little bit of time in clinic with pediatrics, kids, of course, are curious. And so If I'm seeing a kid in clinic, I usually just kind of give a brief, my bones are different. So I'm using a wheelchair, I'm wearing this wrist brace, and it's really cool. But with adults, that seems less necessary. And I really have only had a handful of patients ever bring up my disability. I think in general, I find that people tend to be comfortable talking to me. I'm the kind of person that I'll be at the airport and somebody will come up and just spill their whole life story. And I've heard, you know, other, other friends who have disabilities sometimes have similar experiences. So I think, I don't know if people just think, oh, she has some experience in the healthcare system. And so she may be more empathetic, but it really hasn't been an issue. I have had some issues with kind of meeting other people who are there either as faculty or as staff or as observers, just kind of being shocked at my presence you know, asking kind of invasive questions right off the bat. But I don't, don't tend to get that from patients. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to hear Yeah, how the medical community is a little bit more direct or a little bit more harsh in the way the questions are directed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's almost as if they think like, oh, she's a patient in this hospital. So let me ask her medical questions when it's like, <laughs> no, actually I'm, I'm your colleague. I have had some, some challenges with accessibility at various various environments. Um, heavy doors are the bane of my existence. <laughs> and I wish that every door either had a button or was nice and light. And this kind of speaks to the social model of disability, which states that it's not somebody's impairment that is the problem, but it's the environment that is creating the problem. So for me, it's not a problem that I can't get into a certain room because of a heavy door. That's not my problem. That's the, the building's problem. And the solution isn't changing something with my body. The solution is changing that building so that it's more accessible for everyone. That's really interesting to hear. You and I had a discussion in the past, and you did mention the whole social model Mm -hmm. of disability versus the medical model. And I do feel that perhaps in graduate school, we tend to learn a lot about the medical aspects of disability, and perhaps we communicate that mostly to our patients. Yeah. So do you feel like we have to change or implement any changes in the way we are educated or trained? Yeah, I would love to see more more information about the social model and just highlighting more people's lives with disabilities. I think in our training, we tend to focus on the immediate diagnosis of a disability. And so the, you know, the, the grief that comes with that and focusing on that immediate support. And I think sometimes what gets lost is that there are people with these disabilities that have a genetic component that are living wonderful full lives with the, the resources that they need. 
And so I think just kind of having that social model in mind helps you think, okay, this child may not be able to see this picture book. So what else can I do? What other resources can I provide for this family? Maybe connect them to resources for Braille books for for children who are visual impaired. Just kind of focusing more on what are ways that this person or this family can continue to do the things that they enjoy instead of focusing on the impairment. And just given that you brought up this great point, if counselor is first starting out with the uh, medical aspects of a disability and part of her or his counseling uh, protocol, and then they would like to follow it up with resources that would help yeah. the patients understand the social aspect. What resources would you recommend that we investigate? I know it very yeah. much depends on the condition, right. but just in general, are there any suggestions that you would give us? Yeah. I think, you know, many genetic counselors are familiar with Little People of America. And something that I'm really proud of with our organization is that we're not focused on fundraising for a cure. We're focused on celebrating ourselves the way that we are. And certainly hoping for certain medical advances that help with things like joint pain and spinal stenosis, but not looking for things to add height. And so I think that's a really great resource for families who, you know, have a new diagnosis of dwarfism and um, including for families who are, you know, choosing clinical trials to intervene where we strive to be an inclusive place. I think in general, looking up various support groups, sometimes it's, it's hard to tell, but I think making sure that people understand that they have legal protections based on disability status. So if there are any, you know, legal resources in the area for finding out about protections under the Americans with Disabilities Act, that would be a a great place to start. There are local centers for independent living. Access Living is the one here local in Colorado that can be a great way to, to connect with others and just pick up on some of those resources. Oh, and vocational rehabilitation would actually be another one. It's each state has a, a vocational rehabilitation department that can help fund resources, accommodations that wouldn't be paid by insurance for people with disabilities to go to school and or obtain employment. So I actually just within the past year purchased a new van and had it modified through voc rehab so that I'm able to, to continue driving safely and, and comfortably, which has been amazing. I feel that people in general are hesitant to ask Mm -hmm. questions or they're afraid to ask them when they see somebody with a physical disability. Yeah. Given the experiences that you have so far, do you welcome these questions or do they annoy you at some point because of the frequency? Right. If it's a child, I'm never annoyed. I love kids. I used to work at a daycare center. I've always loved kids. I have nieces and nephews. And so that never bothers me. And I would always prefer a parent who has an interested child to come up and just say hello and talk to me than to like hush them and shoo them away from me. If it's an adult, it it does get pretty old. (laughs) And especially because it tends to be the first and the only thing that people ask me. So Mm -hmm. if I meet somebody new, I don't want the first question to be like, hey, what's with the wheelchair? Why are you so short? Like, I would rather them ask like, oh, are you from around here? What do you do? Some other questions instead of that being the only thing that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I find that a lot of people, they get upset if I don't want to answer their question. And it's almost like they feel entitled to knowing information about my body just because it looks different than theirs. 
And so I think just keep in mind that we can, you know, it, it can be, it can be draining and not every day will I have the patience to kind of um, navigate that. So right. I think if it's, you know, if it's somebody that you're working with or somebody that you're encountering regularly, then certainly it's fine to ask questions, you know, as part of a conversation, but not to just go up to a random person and, and ask them something. Do you feel that a follow-up question or a follow-up thought that adults may have in these types mm-hmm. of situations is to, like you said, be shocked or surprised that mm-hmm. somebody with a disability would have the intelligence and cognitive ability that you have to not mm-hmm. only have a higher degree, but to maneuver the psychosocial aspect of medical conditions and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the first job that I had, there were three people that when I was first introduced to them, they jumped back in surprise at meeting me, which didn't feel great for my, my first job out of grad school. My, uh, my current job, nobody has reacted that way, which has been great. But yeah, I think people in the medical field just tend to be, they tend to think of somebody as a disability as being their patient and just kind of medicalize them and see them as their diagnosis instead of seeing them as a whole person who has a job and family and friends and, in my case, cats. <laughs> a lot of the genetic counselors that I meet prefer virtual settings for various reasons, whether it's life-work balance, you know, avoiding long rides, etc. In your situation, because of everything we've been discussing in this context, have you been enjoying the virtual model of remote work better or it, that's not really a huge factor in your decision? Yeah, I really miss being in person. I miss seeing my coworkers in person, just having that, you know, quick chat with the nurses in the break room when we're getting a coffee. I miss that in-person connection with patients. So even though there have been some things that have been made easier with virtual visits, just in terms of, you know, less traffic, less driving, I do do miss being in clinic, but I do appreciate regardless the ability to to work from home, which I do have for, you know, follow up results and that kind of thing, regardless of pandemic or not. Right. Who doesn't? Yep. Seriously. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sarah, I know that you have been involved in creating what sounds to me as a support group for genetic counselors with disabilities. And because we're not able to interview everybody, I really want to give a voice for yourself and for the genetic counselors who identify as part of that community. First, what voice would you like to give them? And in particular, what can others, particularly other genetic counselors, can do to be more aware and more inclusive? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest message is just that we exist. (laughs) There, you know, there are genetic counselors with disabilities who work in a variety of fields, prenatal, pediatrics, cancer, virtual, in person. We bring a lot to the table in terms of, you know, our, our own experiences, but also just, you know, navigating the healthcare system and knowing how to advocate for resources and I think also that, you know, we, we may require certain accommodations either in school or in work and that that's okay. Um, I think, you know, sometimes in, in programs there can be such a competitive nature almost that accommodations can be viewed as kind of a, a leg up um, when really they're just the goal is to, to level the playing field. 
So I think just, you know, being aware that there are different ways that people do things and different supports that people need. And also that you can't see every disability. So, you know, yes, you can see my stature and that I'm using a chair, but you can't see if it's a day that I have a bad migraine. And, you know, there, there are lots of people who have conditions that cause pain or fatigue or other illness that you can't see. And I, I think a lot of people fear disclosing that because of being afraid of stigma, being afraid of how people react. So I think I would just, yeah, encourage genetic counselors just to be aware that we exist. There are probably a lot more of us than people realize just because people haven't disclosed. And so just being in a mindset of acceptance and support. I do have to mention to our audience that we did schedule this interview to occur last week, and we did actually have to reschedule it because of pain that Sarah was experiencing on the day of the previous or the initial interview date. So that was, although it's common knowledge, it really hit me hard to realize that it's not just a physical appearance with disability. There's a lot of, like you said, complications, medical visits that you experience that others may not be aware of. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, All of the appointments that I have every week that I'm balancing, you know, on top of my my full-time schedule. Sarah, we know that social media can be an awesome way for people with genetic conditions to connect. Um, Online platforms can also sometimes be more accessible for folks um, than other support venues. However, social media and the internet can get very harsh and can reinforce stereotypes. Can you comment on some of the positive and negative aspects of social media and how the disability community is represented online? Yeah, Um, I, you know, I'm in a number of Facebook groups um, for people with dwarfism and so have connected with people with similar conditions around the world, um, connected with lots of parents, with young children, um, which has been really fun. And so in that aspect, um, it is really positive of just bringing people together, helping people feel less alone and having a a place to share their stories. Um, You know, sometimes for, there are a lot of people now, there's the whole like influencer thing where people are, are an influencer and they have this following <laughs> and that's what they do. Um, and I've seen a lot of really great influencers on social media. Um, but, you know, I know that sometimes people can take that and then kind of twist it and, and be cruel with it. But um, if you're looking for accounts to follow, here's some of my favorites of people with genetic conditions. Um, Melissa Blake, who has, I believe... Oh, I can't remember, but um, she, she was on, she was one of the people that was targeted by that TikTok campaign. Um, Also, Wheelchair Rapunzel has spinal muscular atrophy and um, has a a shop of clothing. I, uh, my favorite shirt says, love your jeans, and it was ordered from her. (laughs) Um, Crutches and Spice is a black woman with cerebral palsy who does a lot of advocacy on Instagram. Um, the Rolettes is a, a wheelchair dance team based out of California that I finally learned how to do a, v- a wheelie after watching their videos. <laughs> um, the Disabled Hippie um, is a queer person with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, who has some some great content. These are really helpful resources. I've only known about one, just to let you know, the TikTok campaign. And yeah. so... This will be, um, I'm going to go check out a few of them. I'm sure a lot of people will. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't ask you about? Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, our field realizes that we have a diversity problem. Um, you know, there's a certainly a, a lack of, of diversity in genetic counseling. And um, I would just say that as we're working to address that, you know, at the, the undergraduate level of, you know, trying to, to find students to mentor and encourage them to apply for genetic counseling, just to include disability um, and to think about the value of, of people with genetic conditions being in our field and, and having a voice at the table. Sarah, I appreciate your presence with me today so much. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. And now over to Naomi and Melanie. Hello, I'm Naomi Wagner, and I'm here with Melanie today. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start broadly um, to ask if you could introduce yourself a little bit more for us. I know the topic of disability is personal to you and your family. Would you mind starting us off by sharing with us a little bit about your family and your experience with disability? Sure. So I have multiple family members with disability. I am the youngest of three sisters, and my eldest sister has a diagnosis of autism. And her autism is more of what I think of as um, the classic autism, because when she was diagnosed, this was um, close to 40 years ago, when the diagnosis, my parents were told, was a incidence of around 1 in 10,000. So this used to be a very, very rare diagnosis. And when she was diagnosed, she was told she was mild. And now the spectrum has changed and she is considered severe. Mm. So for us and our family, autism has been very evolving in what we consider it to look like. So I grew up with disability. That was a life that I knew. Um, Growing up, my um, middle sister and I, so both sisters are elder to me, but we were in, um, I suppose they would be considered support groups, but I think they were more of play therapy groups with other children that had siblings with autism because it was such a rare diagnosis at the time. There were not many people to talk to. Mm-hmm. And and my sister went, she was bused extremely far to be at a special needs school because children with special needs were completely segregated at that time and they were not part of the general society. It was a very different time to live in even Um, 30 years ago, growing up with a child with special needs. And now I am a mother to a young boy with special needs. My son has Down syndrome. And so my role um, as a family member to someone with special needs has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, society has changed dramatically as well. My son is not bust at all. He goes to school just down the road. And he has been in an inclusive school um, with COVID. Now, now that is no longer an option. Mm-hmm. Everybody is segregated. I will say that, but that's no one's fault. Um, and even now, my son has Down syndrome. And when people see him, it is so funny because now people say, oh, does he have autism? Because that's the diagnosis everyone knows. People don't even know what Down syndrome is now. Autism is a hot buzzword. Mm-hmm. So um, special needs has just been a part of my family my entire life. And my role regarding a family member has, of course, I'm still a sister, but it's changed in my responsibilities and who I am as a family member. And I've taken on multiple roles there. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I know your roles were different, you know, as a sibling versus as a parent, but can you comment briefly on what you've seen change? And you've, you started to talk about in terms of schooling, but what else have you seen change over time from when you were growing up with your sister to when you're raising your son now? In some ways, things change, and in some ways, things stay the same. It's um, a little bit sad mm-hmm. in that sense. With um, my sister, we when we would go out, for sure, people would look at her very strange. And truth be told, we did not go out much outside of um, pretty much our neighborhood and our block. People knew who my sister was. They knew she had special needs and we were understood in our very small community. But my parents never went out. They almost never left the house. And certainly we never went out as a family. And I don't want to say never, but it was seldom and it was rare because of her special needs. And we got a lot of, we got a lot of stares and we got a lot of looks and I would say even as a child, I felt that we were not very much appreciated when we went out in public and had someone with special needs. I could feel that as a child. And I know that my whole family felt that. So going out anywhere was rare. Family vacations happened just once a year to go visit family. I I will say we never did anything I think other families did, such as I hear people went to Disney World. That sounds lovely. I have no idea what that was like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think a lot of that was because of the strange stares we got. And unfortunately, even now, it was only a few years ago, I can think of being out having my sister in Target with me. And a lady stopped and made some very unfortunate comments about how I shouldn't have her in public. And, And I just said, I'm sorry you feel that way and kept on walking with her. These things do still happen and people feel that they have the right to express those. And we do ignore those comments and continue on with our way. Um, With my son, certainly it's very different. My son and I, um, I'm grateful and we do vacation. We do go out, we go out to eat. And I feel much more that it's accepted when I take Brennan out. He he makes a royal mess in a restaurant. He has a hard time, just as my sister did growing up, using utensils. That's hard for him. And we leave just as much on the floor as actually makes it to his mouth in a restaurant. But now people have good graces. They tend to smile. The um, waitressing staff says, nope, don't mind it perfectly acceptable. People tend to be a lot more forgiving and I don't feel the stigma of going out in public, nor do I with my sister anymore. There are always the few people who give condescending looks and much more rarely the people who feel that they have the right to stop and tell me it's not acceptable. I'm I'm glad to hear things are improving, though certainly disappointing to hear that some of the experience you had years and years ago um, still sometimes happen um, and would love to see that change. But it seems like, unfortunately, it's been sort of slow progress over time. So I'm, I'm curious, how did your experiences with disability impact your decision to go into the field of genetic counseling? So growing up in um, my neighborhood where I was a child with my sister and we lived a very long time, we had a friend in the neighborhood who had a daughter with Down syndrome. And 
I ended up working with her once I graduated high school as a an assistant to her daughter, so to speak. Um, it was somewhat of a therapist role. I would help her with schooling and whatever she needs on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And it was in many ways a part of being with my sister and growing up in that neighborhood and living in that community of disabilities that got me that job. And it was her mother who suggested to me while I was in college and a bit wandering around, not knowing what I wanted to do. Her mother said to me, I think you need to meet our genetic counselor. I think you would be great at this job. And so I said, all right, I have no idea what a genetic counselor is. Why don't I go shadow her? And so I did. I went and shadowed her genetic counselor and I said, I think you're right. And I shadowed a few more times. And it was that connection in our society of family members with disabilities. And that led me to that job. Mm hmm. It's great to hear when, you know, patients had such a positive experience with their genetic counselor, you know, that they're sharing with family members. And mm-hmm. um, it's a sort of a great story of how you came to the profession. Does your does your family experiences change your choice of specialty or jobs over the years as well? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. When I first got out of um, our master's program, I had no particular push as to which field to go into. I was very open to everything. Um, And I think like many people, I was just scared about getting a job because I was so worried I wasn't going to get one. You know, the field has changed now and there are more jobs than counselors. Uh, And so I, I was not set on a particular field. However, I did have a little bit of a personal family incidents because I did start in cancer and loved it. It was wonderful. I have no regrets there. Um, it was an amazing first job, but then having a child with Down syndrome, as hopefully everyone is aware, that is the most common pediatric cancer syndrome there is. Brennan did end up with a diagnosis of leukemia, and mm. it became far too difficult for me. I was over identifying with patients and just going into the office every day was too hard with mm-hmm. leaving from the cancer office, taking care of patients, going directly to the pediatric cancer center taking care of my son. And I had to make a disconnect from that. It it became too hard. I was over empathizing with patients. And I think in many ways, putting my experiences onto patients that they were not having. And so I realized that I was doing that in my own practice. And I had to remove myself from that setting. That makes sense. I've, I've heard that experience with some other genetic counselors and in, in different specialties as well. Has that happened to you with patients with Down syndrome or people carrying a pregnancy with Down syndrome? Have you interacted with those patients as well? It can be very difficult with patients with Down syndrome because now I am in almost exclusively the prenatal setting now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I see these patients, particularly I think the number one response I see from these patients is when there is a diagnosis, the responses of parents are, I cannot handle this. And I remember myself with Brennan before he was born, um, my, my number one fear was leukemia above and beyond everything. I just said to myself, I can handle anything. I could handle a heart defect. I can handle, a, you know, kidneys, anything. 
not leukemia. That was my greatest fear. Mm-hmm. And even my friends talking to me, they're like, aren't you worried about a heart attack? I was like, nope, nope, anything but leukemia. I can take it. And so as a parent, I know we are significantly more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. And I would love to be able to tell my patients that and tell them I've faced my greatest fears twice now with Brennan because he's had leukemia twice now Mm. and come out on the other side and you can manage it. It might break you down and tear you apart because I will not lie and say that I was the strongest person. It definitely took its toll on me, but we made it through and we came out stronger for it. But I do not feel comfortable telling my patients my own personal story Mm -hmm. when they are facing the decision of do we continue or discontinue our pregnancy because I don't want them to think I'm in any way putting that on them that I think they should continue. Mm -hmm. What I do want them to know and I do feel the need to tell them is they are stronger than they give themselves credit for. They can overcome obstacles. I do share that and do have them reflect on what has been the most scary and difficult event you faced in your life. How have you overcome it and not let the fear drive them. The fear shouldn't make the decision, but the reality of what is it other than the fear that's making your decision here. I think that's a great lens for a lot of our decisions. And I think a lot of us could use that in our genetic counseling sessions and in different settings. So thanks for sharing that. So I know we talk about intellectual disability a lot in counseling sessions, whether or not it's in the prenatal or pediatric settings. And I'm curious if your family experiences have impacted the way you counsel patients on the topic of intellectual disability. For me, with my patients, I do tell them that if they're going to have a child with an intellectual disability, it is going to change their day-to-day life, but it is going to be essentially a new normal, assuming they go forward with that pregnancy, that their child is going to be, and it depends on, of course, the level of intellectual intellectual disability. There is not going to be any changing the fact that their child is going to have an intellectual disability, is going to be slower at obtaining skills, but there will be skills obtained and you will celebrate whatever milestones your child obtains. Now, for some children, that might be very simple milestones. Some children can be very significantly delayed, and it might be the simple milestones of your child smiles at you, your child rolls over, they learn to grasp an object. You celebrate those milestones. For other children, it might be more significant milestones. They learn their ABCs. They learn to read sight words. And that becomes your new normal. And the reality is, especially if it's your first child, and this is um, easier for my parents expecting their first children, your child becomes the normal child and the Mm -hmm. standard. And you look at every other child and they're really quite strange. And that's not how I phrase it to my parents, but it is true because I look at Brennan and his milestones and I see other children and I'm like, well, they're really kind of different, aren't they? They're not doing things normally. My son is the standard of normal. But Mm -hmm. when 
when they're not the first child, then the whole family just becomes the standard of normal and they're going to celebrate their child's milestones. And it's okay if they happen on a different level than the other children, whether they're the children in the family or they're the children you know, outside of the family that are on the same age group and peer level. It's what's your child's standard of normal and you celebrate for your child what's happening. But I do tell my patients because they ask, you know, can we change this? Can we do anything about this? I say no, but we can equip your child to reach his or her maximum potential. And what have been some of the most helpful tools or resources for you as a parent in helping Brennan achieve his maximum? Um, For Brennan to achieve his maximum potential, um, some of the most helpful resources, honestly, are one, ignoring what everybody else is telling me is working um, for their child, because sometimes all of that extra information from other parents who don't have my son is a little overwhelming. For me, being his advocate knowing what he needs, even above and beyond doctors. I go to the doctor and I say, I see this day to day. You're seeing him for, honestly, maybe it's only 10 minutes, maybe 15 or 20 if I'm getting a really good appointment. Mm -hmm. And I need X, Y, and Z. And the best for me to do is give you a concrete example. Brennan is going to be turning eight. I cannot get him off a sippy cup. So I went to the doctor and I said, I, I have to have um, therapy at home. School is not cutting it. This has to happen. And we are having therapy at home now, occupational therapy to work on transitioning him off the sippy cup because I've realized my limitations. I cannot do it on my own. Realizing your limitations, advocating, knowing when to bring in the extra help and sometimes seeking that professional help. And also for Brennan, a mixture of giving him peers that are special needs because he needs to be around children that are experiencing what he's experiencing and giving him peers that are non-special needs and pushing him beyond his comfort level, pushing him to do things that are very difficult with him. I've put him in a, a class at a gym that has no special needs students and it's extremely hard for him to maintain his focus, to stay on track the whole time. And it's very good for him to have that little extra push and little extra pressure and be raised to the standard of all the other students. Yeah, I think those examples are are helpful to think about you from your personal experience. My last question for you is, You've alluded to this, you know, how people with disabilities might be seen or represented in the community. And I'm curious if you could comment on some of the positive or negative aspects of the internet and social media and how the disability community is represented. Mm-hmm. So in full truth, I stay off social media, Twitter, Facebook, because of um, frustration in general. Uh, but I also do read on the internet from time to time and read these stories. Um, I have some friends that are very active on the internet and they're very active advocates for their children. But I have also seen that turning negative. There have been positive trends. I, for a few seasons, watched um, 
uh, Born This Way. It was an entire show about young adults with Down syndrome, and it was the only uh, reality TV show I've ever watched, but it was a very positive spin on that transition between young adolescence to adulthood for um, adults with disabilities and them trying to make that transition to more independent living for themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I thought it was very well done and very appropriate showing that more so than anything, these are just adults making an adult transition. I thought that should have been the main takeaway over these are adults with Down syndrome. The Down syndrome was a very secondary message there. But above and beyond that, what bothers me is there has to be a show especially about adults with Down syndrome. We do still segregate. Mm -hmm. That is what I have noticed. You do not go to a movie and see a movie and there is just someone with Down syndrome in that movie. It's going to be a movie about someone with Down syndrome. These individuals should just be integrated into everyday society. We don't need to make it special about them. I think the moment that we start saying, you know, this is a person and just leave it there instead of this is a person with Down syndrome, this is a person with Apert syndrome, this is a person with achondroplasia, no, this is a person, end it there. I think we're really going to start making a bigger message at that point. I agree. I I definitely look forward to the day when we can see more diverse representations of disability in the media, more positive. And like you said, just a TV show with characters who may have physical or intellectual disabilities and be part of the show, not be there to represent their disability group. Well, thank you for sharing so much about your family, your sister, your son, and your path to genetic counseling. I appreciated it, and I I expect our listeners will enjoy this conversation, too. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. We'll be back in your feed next month for a special November Genetic Counselors Awareness Day episode. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Liaquat. We'll see you next month.